Hello and welcome to a special edition of Baker McKenzie's Resilience, Recovery, and Renewal podcast series. In the next two episodes, we're going to focus on the road to COP26. In the lead-up to the highly anticipated UN Climate Conference, we'll look at the role companies around the world play in the race to net zero. We'll discuss the challenges, as well as the opportunities that leaders are facing as they look to become more sustainable and address climate change. In this episode, we're going to discuss the importance of good governance and what steps organizations can take to manage risk and ultimately contribute to positive change. I'm Jen Northam, and joining me today is David Hackett and B. Arujo, both partners at Baker McKenzie. B. supports the World Economic Forum as an expert on governance projects, and David advises companies on compliance, risk, environmental, and sustainability matters. Also joining us today is Karina Litvak. Karina wears many hats and sits on many boards. She's an independent non-executive director of ENI, non-executive chairman of the Sustainability Board Committee of Virador Waste Management Limited, and she's also chairman of the governing board of the Climate Governance Initiative. Now, before we jump right in, David, can you tell us why this COP in particular is so important? There's always a lot of excitement and energy and anticipation going into a COP, but particularly this year in light of a combination of weather events around the world and aggressive activity to address climate in the EU and a renewed uh, interest on the part of the US, there seems to be greater excitement and interest as well as optimism about the COP and the opportunity to make meaningful progress in addressing climate. While the devil's always in the detail, uh, there's significant hope that uh, meaningful uh, progress will be made going forward. Now, the UN has already asked the world to aim for net zero emissions by 2050, and participation from the private sector is obviously critical in reaching that goal. Karina, what are you seeing, and are most companies proactively embracing a more sustainable strategy? Depends where you ask the question, because, you know, here in the UK and in many parts of Western Europe, it's definitely on the agenda. Uh, It's on the agenda for executives. Um, Boards tend to be way behind on this issue. Board directors don't have the skills yet to really lead on this the way they do on strategy, audit, remuneration, etc. And I would say, you know, US and Canada, it's obviously patchy for similar reasons. Where it's a challenge, honestly, is in the emerging world. And um, the the pushback that I get from my fellow directors in places like Malaysia, Mexico, Brazil, and so on is, um, first of all, this is not what we know how to do. But secondly, we didn't create this problem. You did. So um, you fix it. And it's a problem for government to fix, not us. So you get all these different objections, and it makes it harder to convince directors that this is really something that they have to own, but it is changing. Karina, do you think it's an issue of board composition as well? Do companies have to look at board composition to get that skill set? You need to bring people in who have a sensibility to this, who know what they don't know, and can uh, ensure that the board seeks the information it needs in order to, first of all, put this on the agenda, and secondly, know how to deal with it. Um, and so that's what I work on with fellow directors is to is to get d- directors knowledgeable enough t- to know how to put it on the agenda and how to advance it. And one of your roles is your independent non-executive director, Eni. 
And we all know Eni's a very large energy company. It's committed to becoming carbon neutral by 2050. What are some of the steps that company has taken to address uh, this issue? And what have been some of the challenges that you've seen? Well, it, you know, first of all, it took the company six years to um, work out in minute detail how it was going to reach 2050. Um, it's something that we started talking about in 2014. And the various different teams in the company sat down to map how we could get there, bearing in mind that our core product is the problem and that we needed to look at our uh, carbon footprint in a way that included the impact of our products, which is frankly exceptional in the oil and gas sector. The overwhelming majority of oil and gas companies, to the extent they look at this, only look at you know the emissions that they produce from drilling, they don't look at the emissions that their product generates in use. And that part is 85 to 90% of our footprint. So we can't afford to ignore it. Um, But if you're going to do that as an oil and gas company, you need to work out what you're going to look like in 2050. And for us, the answer was uh, people buy our products because they want heating and cooling, light, mobility, power, industrial power. They don't care if it comes in a barrel or an an electron. And so we needed to deliver on that need with a different product. And so we set to work figuring out the different steps we were going to take to reduce our um, exposure to oil and gas, increase our exposure to clean energy, recyclable and renewable chemicals, biorefining, sustainable mobility, and of course, power generation that is um, zero emissions. And once we had all the pieces of the puzzle together, we went public with a plan that said, we will get down to minus 80% by 2050. Obviously elicited a question from me, which was what about the other 20%? And, And the answer was, we don't make promises that we don't yet know we can definitely keep. So everything that that we've announced We've mapped, we've costed, we've tested it. These are all technologies that we own, and therefore we know we can deliver it. Uh, A year later, in the teeth of the pandemic, we accelerated and we got ourselves to 100%. So we're going to be down 100% of all our emissions by 2050. Now, B, I'd love to bring you in because you collaborated on a white paper with the World Economic Forum. And that white paper was about how companies need to move from a balance sheet to a value sheet. Can you explain to us what that means and how difficult a transition that is for some companies? Yeah, sure, Jen. Um, I mean, that's my second white paper in collaboration with the forum. uh, And I'll just briefly touch on the first one uh, because there's a story here. Um, So the first one, which was published in uh, March 2019, um, one of the conclusions I reached there was that in governance terms, I could see us moving into a new era, that of stakeholder capitalism, where a broader set of stakeholders would become more activist, just as we have seen shareholders and investors do. In summary, um, the idea behind the second paper was to become more granular and practical. What steps can companies take to do ESG well? And as to what moving from balance sheet to value sheet mean, the voice of the stakeholders needs to rise into the boardroom and inform decision-making. Why? because knowing your stakeholders' expectations is a form of looking into the future, an essence of risk mitigation strategy, a concept that's now also referred to as dynamic materiality. Is that a difficult transition for some some companies? 
I think that difficult or not, it's a journey that most companies will need to embark on if they haven't already. So in the second paper, um, I posit that it's critical for companies to have a good stakeholder governance in place in order to do ESG and in particular uh, address climate risk well. I boil it down to some overarching questions that boards and executives and those who advise them may wish to consider when seeking to embed stakeholder governance principles into the organization. So the questions are around purpose, which stakeholders are material for the company to succeed in its purpose. Secondly, there's strategy. What is our roadmap? Then thirdly, you need to move on to culture and values. How do we do things here? What are our guiding principles and behaviors? And last but not least, you need to look at your governance framework. How do we ensure good decision-making across the entire corporation? So just to, to conclude, stakeholder governance does start with companies having a deep understanding of who their key stakeholders are and how those stakeholders are impacted by and how they themselves impact the business. So hearing what your stakeholders think you should do about your business impact on the climate is important. Likewise, being able to tell them to report accurately what you have done and what you have achieved is equally important. So if you make a net zero commitment, be ready to show where you are in that journey and how you're progressing. And David, I'd like to stay on that topic of of stakeholders and, and stakeholder governance, where companies are actively today being challenged to adopt a more strategic approach to climate change, and it's being demanded of their stakeholders. But to be more pessimistic, what about those companies that aren't taking a proactive role? And what risk does that pose to the future viability of that company? During the past several years, it's become increasingly evident that there are significant material growing risks related to inattention to climate. One is uh, the ability to respond to growing government regulation about performance and disclosure about it and potential uh, legal risk related to it. Second, significantly uh, growing investor risk. It is clear that the investment community is very interested in climate performance and is making decisions about including or excluding Uh, companies relating to how they're perceived to be doing. You have a variety of ESG and other funds that are making decisions about who's in their funds and who is not, such that uh, really there are fundamental risks related to access to capital in connection with uh, inattention to climate considerations. Third, there's the prospect of diminished company valuation. A few years ago, BNI participated in an undertaking for the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, where we interviewed a number of company boards uh, members about ESG issues. And one of the things that was interesting was speaking to some private equity board members who in previous years had been not so persuaded about the significance of ESG or climate. And they were among the most aggressive about underscoring the importance of climate and the need for companies to attend to it, believing that how companies perform in that area will materially affect valuation. Fourth, particularly for companies who are in the supply chain, there's pressure downward on performance. And in order to be Uh, a a favored supplier for major companies, you increasingly need to evidence an ability to satisfy um, supply chain uh, related climate issues. 
And finally, there's market and reputation risk. Uh, uh, there's growing media stories about companies either who are having climate-related problems or uh, are perceived to be underperforming in that area, coupled with kind of growing activist uh, attention to perceived underperformers. Those who lag behind in the climate world do so at their peril, directly relating to economic and capital questions and customer demand relating to them. So with all that in mind, I mean, as companies do look to offset the the risk of climate change, what advice are you giving your clients and what are some of the most important issues they should be considering? How can they be monitoring themselves effectively? I think really there's a move towards looking broadly at ESG and particularly at climate, increasingly as a part of enterprise risk management. And to treat climate the same way that one would major compliance issues, meaning you need to have a program, okay, that addresses governance and structure in which you undertake risk assessments to decide what's important and what's not. Look at and think about training people throughout the company to be in a position to implement your policies and programs, monitoring and auditing how you're doing, thinking about and having in place effective controls around reporting and disclosure. Apart from really having kind of meaningful programmatic structure, it's particularly important to evaluate what are the opportunities and the risks and to devise a plan to prioritize those activities that are most meaningful for you and to attend to them. And that kind of evaluation needs to look at a company's own operations and products and think about what the potential risks and opportunities might be related to them uh, going forward, as well as what other events and developments outside the company potentially could impact their performance, ranging from, you know, kind of weather or climate events to government regulation, market considerations, investment community concerns, stakeholder interests. You need to be taking them into account in some kind of periodic risk assessment to allow for the creation of an appropriate responsive climate program for the company. And certainly one of the models of increasing importance, I think, is the task force on climate disclosure. You have um, really accelerating interest on the part of both regulators and in particular, the investment community. And and, one needs to think carefully about the kinds of uh, considerations and evaluations contemplated within TCFD and incorporate them into the program that one has. Now be, David's laid out very nicely the risks that that companies face when it comes to climate change and reporting, but there's got to be some opportunities here. I mean, for companies that are ahead of the curve when it comes to sustainability, how can having a robust climate strategy really create those opportunities for companies? Some of these may be the other side of the coin to what uh, David has just said, but certainly doing the E of ESG well can create opportunities for a number of reasons. Uh, one Stakeholder governance is developing into a license to operate issue. 
and companies are expected to move from words to action. So a climate-conscious strategy should have positive long-term benefits for companies. And I would go further and suggest that companies should look beyond their CO2 emissions. They should consider their whole relationship with nature because there will be opportunities as well as risk coming from water supply shortages, biodiversity, plastics in the ocean, to name but a few examples. Uh, Secondly, the law is evolving in many jurisdictions to help push uh, sustainability considerations as a political agenda. So a level playing field is being created where companies will be subject to a defined set of rules, principally around transparency. This is currently a big issue for companies. Some are reporting at some expense and difficulty, others aren't. So there's slightly uh, lack of a level playing field. But more importantly, in this regard, the US is now behind the climate agenda. And I would expect that to have a huge impact on how companies approach their climate agenda, at least to the extent that they operate in the US as well. Thirdly, and as mentioned before, uh, a good stakeholder governance framework doing ESG is a risk mitigation exercise, so ignore it at your peril. Uh, Fourthly, activism, both the organized and soft power versions from investors, employees, uh, consumers and campaigners is growing. So be ready to address such activism with a a climate friendly story. Five, which David has alluded to, is access to private capital. ESG continues to be driven in particular by institutional investors who are investing in companies that have a good ESG track record. ESG is also now becoming a credential for access to public funds. So there's a huge economic incentive for companies to earn their ESG credentials. And a, a connected reason is that it is actually increasingly becoming a factor to be considered in M&A valuations, we're seeing uh, more and more clients asking us to do specific ESG due diligence when assessing targets they're, they're looking to acquire, and they are clearly turning that into numbers leading to the final price. And Karina, let's get back to the issue of transparency, because we've all spoken about it um, at different points. But we all know shareholders, investors, they're demanding more transparency, they're demanding more meaningful engagement with boards in regards to ESG. What transparency mechanisms can boards put in place now to highlight their commitment to a more sustainable future? Boards will complain loudly, as will their companies, that there is a proliferation of different reporting models and an alphabet soup and all of those things. Um, That's true. As the woman who runs Climate Change at the Bank of England says, um, we don't have the luxury to wait for everything to be perfect before we before we get going. So, um, so we just have to plow through it, but there are tools and, and, and David mentioned the task force for climate related financial disclosure, which provides a um, perfectly usable reporting framework and is in the process of being adopted. It is turning from soft law to hard law. And, you know, lucky for the hundreds of companies that have been reporting according to this framework already on a voluntary basis, it works. And what you see, and I've experienced this in my own board, because not only do we uh, comply with the TCFD, but we're also subject to the um, EU non-financial reporting directive, which translated into national legislation in Italy, as it did in all the EU 27. And that compels us to report on an extremely broad set of indicators. And by the way, we are all individually on the hook for 50,000 euros for any errors or omissions. So that definitely got everybody's attention around the boardroom table. By engaging in this kind of reporting, which meant setting up all sorts of 
management information systems to collect the information that previously had not been disclosed, we discovered um, lots of things that needed to be um, managed much more proactively. Disclosure is not just a process. Disclosure is a means for changing culture and strategy. And um, so it's immensely powerful. And it's a good reason why um, the, the SEC um, consultation on climate disclosure, which just closed last month, um, got thousands of entries because, you know, including um, my group of directors, because we want to see real progress on this front. And David, can we continue talking about this and this issue of accountability? I mean, what are your thoughts about what governments and regulators around the world are doing to ensure that companies do remain compliant and shareholders do receive this information in a fair and transparent way? As Karina was just mentioning, there's been just a significant upward direction in terms of um, governments, especially in Europe and now the growing attention in the US to pushing for the disclosure of more information really in two ways. One, specific detailed kind of metrics related information about actual performance. And secondly, where I think there'll be even more attention going forward is probing the processes by which companies go about thinking about how they're going to address certain issues. So uh, for sure, we'll continue to see um, expanded mandates and increased inquiry uh, by governments seeking to have companies disclose in more and more expansive ways, what they're doing and how they're going about making their decisions. I should add, this will probably be both um, enhanced and complicated by um, rising litigation about um, company performance related to ESG and and, um, climate issues and in particular pertaining to the veracity of statements and claims about what the company is doing. And there's a pretty discernible trend in markets around the world in terms of actions being pursued to hold people accountable for whether what they're saying is true. And that coupled with uh, increasing government Uh, pressures is going to compel companies to not only disclose more, but to be very careful about the accuracy and and the completeness of what they're disclosing. B, when it comes to disclosure, what are some of the legal requirements that boards really need to consider in regards to climate corporate governance? First, I would start with the obvious one, which is uh, director's fiduciary duty at law. Um, In most countries, whether civil or common law uh, applies, directors owe their duties to the company to act in its best interest to ensure its long-term success. In most countries, director must do this for the benefit of existing and future uh, shareholders. And in some countries, they're in addition mandated to take account of stakeholder views in exercising those duties. 
And we're seeing some changes uh, proposed uh, at EU level at the moment, because that's been a bit of a, a weak link in pushing directors to, to do what they're supposed to do. It's, it's quite a, a hard uh, case to bring. But the EU is looking at granting enforcement rights to stakeholders, which will be interesting to see. The reason why I raise a fiduciary duty is because we've seen key stakeholders such as investors, customers, suppliers, communities, etc., making choices based on a company's sustainability credentials, with a company's contribution to abating the climate crisis being an important factor. So this would lead me to a second reason, very connected, in that boards are responsible for overseeing and setting the risk appetite of the company. And in my view, they would fail to do this if they did not properly understand and address or assess rather the risks and opportunities presented by the climate crisis and more broadly the impact of their company's operations on nature and the risks associated with the planet's continuing loss of what is referred to as natural capital. A third reason uh, would be that um, companies have been on the receiving end of stakeholder activism so that rather than asking whether they can afford to do these things, well-advised companies are increasingly asking themselves whether they can afford not to. And given that boards are, t- boards are tasked with setting and guiding the company's strategy, it's critical that they understand the importance of embedding sustainability uh, ESG into that strategy. We're seeing more litigation arising from companies failing to match their words and commitments with actions, which brings me to my fourth reason, I guess, which is regulation. So regulation is catching up, uh, mainly around transparency. Um, There's been a lot of work in the past year pushing for the convergence of ESG standards globally. And now we've got the IFRS Foundation. Um, It's become conscious of the need for uh, global comparability of sustainability-related financial disclosures, and it's focused on using what is out there already under the umbrella of the proposed International Sustainability Standards Board. Organizations that are already addressing ESG will have an easier time and less expense in adapting to these regulatory changes. Improving the quality of corporate disclosure is a key aspect of the EU sustainable finance strategy in support of the EU's uh, transition towards climate neutrality. Uh, The EU is currently hard at work updating the non-financial reporting directive with the corporate sustainability reporting directive, and it's also creating a set of reporting standards. And then we've also heard that the SEC in the US is now coming to the party, announcing plans for more ESG reporting requirements, potentially by fall. But all of these international actors, they're actually working in a coordinated fashion, ensuring compatibility between the global baseline, which will be the IFRS one, and their own initiatives. Leading the charge is climate reporting with the globally accepted Task Force for Climate-Related Disclosures Recommendations, the TCFD, which is becoming mandatory in an increasing number of countries, and this will only accelerate with COP26 around the corner. Finally, this last question is for all of you, and you've all given some great advice throughout this podcast, but if you could just give me some tangible, practical steps Um, each of you, that boards need to take in order to implement a governance framework that allows them to comply with both voluntary and mandatory commitments in relation to climate responsibility. So what are your maybe top three practical steps that boards need to consider? And Karina, can I start with you? Look, the first thing that needs to change in a board is culture, Uh, culture and awareness. And I saw this in my own board. The tipping point, the thing that really catalyzed change on the part of the board directors was um, bringing in a really excellent climate expert who could speak in plain language. So that was step one, because it put everyone in the position of saying, "Uh uh-oh, we have a problem. What do we do? 
And that's, even if we don't know the answer, just having that question is really important. Second, you then have to, as a company, and therefore the board drive the company to assess where we are today. So what is our footprint across the entire value chain? And we need to take a very hard look at that. And then third and most important, I'm going to say what you shouldn't do. Don't just look at it and say, well, the best we could do is this. We have to look at where we need to be because the the goals that are being set in order to stay below that magical 1.5 degrees Celsius maximum temperature increase over the pre-industrial age uh, is determined by factors that are completely external to the company. And that means turning to something called the science-based targets. This is a, a an organization that has mapped out which, what each sector um, may emit. It's our carbon budget. And we need to find out what our carbon budget is. And then to look back at step two, which is where we are, and step three, which is where we need to be, and start developing that roadmap. And it won't be done overnight. Great advice. David, what about you? What are your practical steps? The number of boards, certainly of people who we interviewed, there's some uneasiness about their capacity to understand and think about how to evaluate whether the company was doing the right thing. But make no mistake, ultimately, really, what the board's responsibility is to ensure is that the company has the right people focused on the right issues in the right way with the right resources. And if there's discomfort with the capacity to make that kind of assessment related to climate in particular, as Karina was just uh, suggesting, the boards have to reach either within the company or outside it to become better acquainted with those issues to be in a position to exercise what their responsibility is and to ensure that really the company's plan and strategy in that area is the right one. Great. And B, I'm going to leave you with the final practical tips for everyone. I would sort of go back to basics. I think having a clear corporate purpose, which within it sort of indicates what your approach uh, to, to, to contributing to averting climate disaster might be. Are you just going to beaver on as usual? Are you going to try and help reach net zero? Are you actually going to put back into the environment so have a positive contribution and that then just sort of feeds into um, uh, is this what your stakeholders expect so that would inform it uh, to make sure you're on the right track and then bake it into strategy Uh, from a government and obviously sorry the the culture and values are important uh, to support this as well but at the heart of it will be uh, your governance framework Um, is it solid Uh, will it help deliver on that purpose uh, to the extent it's linked to to, to climate and the environment. Um, looking at the planet as a stakeholder, uh, it means really understanding what the impact of climate change, uh, biodiversity loss, deforestation, etc. will have on the business and knowing what your impact uh, of your business is on nature itself. So you, you need to do the sort of basic uh, due diligence and understandings. And these discussions really need to start in the boardroom. Um, for fiduciary duties, for business longevity reasons, uh, for every reason. It's important enough that it really should 
uh, start in the boardrooms. The board should set the climate and indeed nature agenda and then oversee how management delivers on, on that agenda, work together with management. And there must be a solid feedback loop into the board. Uh, so it's not just this is what we're doing, go off and do it. But it's, you know, you need to continually inform decision making with how your stakeholders are reacting to the path you're taking. Um, and lastly, I think you need to be ready to share what you're doing externally, um, but not before you make sure you have the data that will back up uh, any public commitments and disclosures you make. Thanks to everyone for joining us today. For more information, visit our COP26 hub on bakermckenzie.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode of The Road to COP26, where we'll explore key considerations for the private sector in deploying carbon offsets. Thanks for listening.